Quora is a social network where users can find the best answer to any question. The site has a high-performance engineering culture, and Shreyas Seshasai is the director of engineering at Quora. Shreyas, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Your colleague Nikhil Garg gave a talk at QCon called Quora's Approach to Moving Fast Sustainably. The founders of Quora came from Facebook, which once had the motto, move fast and break things. Is the idea of moving fast sustainably carried over from the the negative lessons of moving too fast at Facebook? Yeah, let's see. So I'm, I'm not sure it was a direct consequence of, of uh, kind of learnings from Facebook. I think a lot of our early team did have experience from Facebook, but I think more of what it was driven by was just understanding that all of us, uh, that this was really a long-term effort that we're building at Quora. So in order to actually achieve our mission, we knew it was going to be something that we were going to have to build over years. And so thinking from the beginning of how can we build things in a way that we know will, will last us for a while and be something that we can iterate on top of and move fast with uh, was something that we thought was just going to be important from the beginning. And so uh, so it's not that we weren't afraid of breaking things from the beginning. And and trust me, from the beginning, I, I personally broke a lot of things myself. But a lot of it was really thinking about the future and thinking about how to prioritize and structure things, knowing that this is something that we all wanted to do for the long run. Many people assume that there is a choice between moving fast with low code quality and moving slow with high code quality. Why is this a false dichotomy? Yeah, so I think part of that might just be because there there might not be too many examples of of sort of like something in between or that overlap, uh, and that's something that we we've really been striving to look for and find. It's where we're uh, again a lot of what we want to do is build something with high quality, build something that users are going to like, that engineers are going to like, and build and iterate on top of, uh, but still move quickly. So uh, I, th- I think some of it may have been partially because. Uh, it's just how developers may have experienced things at companies which didn't necessarily have a lot of focus uh, on developer execution, development velocity. Uh, and so many of the systems were when you think, okay, I need really high quality. The immediate things you start to think of is, okay, that means we're going to need to have a lot of people review the code. Or that means we're going to have to spend a lot of time writing documentation ahead of time and planning. And then sort of like your mind immediately jumps to these sort of like high friction, sort of like more high resistance type systems. And so for us, I think it's a lot of been trying to move away from that and think about, okay, uh, we have these two things that we really want. Like we want to be moving quickly, but we also want to be doing things sustainably and and with high quality and and starting without any assumptions beyond those two goals and then trying to think about how to organize our team and organize our processes in a way that tries to achieve that. So... I'd love to get an idea throughout this conversation of those types of process improvements and technologies that allow you to move fast while maintaining high code quality. But a, uh, a another thing that, that Nikhil said in his talk was that one principle is that we should try to move fast on average. So when we're talking from a philosophical perspective, standpoint still how what does it mean to move fast on average yeah so i think the main thing in there is trying to make sure that you're doing things in a way where 
you're able to like move at high velocity. But understand that doesn't mean that like today you're trying to move as quickly as you can today, or tomorrow you're trying to do things in a way that lets you for this week just move as quickly as you can to get something out. That understanding that a lot of the things that you do today have implications on the future and have implications on what is this going to mean maintaining this down the line? What is this going to mean when someone else tries to build something slightly similar or slightly different? Uh, what is it going to mean when uh, we hit a scale where this particular design might not fit? And so still trying to or have that perspective where the sort of like the future has implications on what we should be doing today. And, and generally what that means in practice is, okay, maybe we'll take an extra day to do something a little more generalized so that it could be useful for the future. Or maybe we'll take uh, an extra day to clean up this older system and sort of like re-architect it in a way that will serve both our current need right now and, and help some of the maintenance cost or do things in a way that will uh, have the benefit of making it easier to maintain in the future. Quora's developers are rewarded for accelerating their engineering practices over time. And one way to accelerate development is to encourage automation. How do you incentivize people to automate? Yeah, so one thing that we learned is actually this, it's it's not actually that hard when you really sort of like empower developers with this, this goal. Because if you think about it, if an engineer is doing something repeatedly over and over and over again, like their mind is immediately going to jump to that place where it's like, okay, how can I make this faster? Or how can I save myself time? And so a lot of times it's, it's not actually hard to find places where we want to automate. And a lot of times it's more of a prioritization issue. And it's like, okay, is it worth taking the extra day to try to write a script to do this for me? And I think what we realize is when we actually start weighing the pros and cons, when you actually start doing the math and thinking, okay, if I spend this extra time now, how much time is that going to save me in the future? Uh, a lot of these were clear wins that were going to pay off. And so so part of it is more of just at sort of like a team prioritization level, making sure that people have space to know that, okay, you can go and take the extra time to uh, to automate something, to write a script for something, to to take away a lot of like the manual processes that you're doing every day. Mm. So, so so it actually hasn't, when, when we sit down and brainstorm with the team, okay, what are the things that are slowing us down? What are the things that we think could improve your day-to-day execution on things. Uh, it's generally been pretty easy to find a lot of low-hanging fruit. So speaking of more specific things, what is Quora's model for continuous deployment, and how does that increase the development velocity? Yeah, so we, uh, we do operate under continuous deployment, and what that means specifically is that every time a developer pushes code, uh, we actually push it out to production immediately as fast as we can. Uh, and in practice these days, it takes around 10 minutes. And and for us, that's it's pretty empowering for people on the team just to know that, okay, I, I have a thing I want to get out. Let me just sit down and do it now. Uh, you're not waiting for uh, a daily build time that will then go and deploy. Uh, there's not a lot of overhead and worrying about, okay, when do I need to batch up all these different small commits together? Um, your mind is really focused on that one thing you want to do. And uh, you could just push it out. You can uh, wait a few minutes. You can see it out in production immediately then, and you can go test it. You can go see how users are using it. Um, you can get data from it as uh, immediately, as, as soon as possible. And so uh, for us, that's really been helpful uh, just in getting people into the mindset of, okay, let me 
let me kind of like, let's get going on this. And, and there's no excuses in a way of waiting for, okay, I need to wait a day for a bill to go out or, um, uh, there's also an element of efficiency too, because, uh, you, your mind doesn't need to context switch. It's not like I write code today and then two days from now, okay, now it's actually in production and, and I need to remember, okay, what change did I make? Uh, let me go test and see, is this actually working now? Uh, let me go now tell users about it, even though I, I did it a few days ago. So, uh, so it's helping us, I think, get stuff out and, and move on and really get into a mindset where we can learn really quickly about how our changes are working in, in actual production. So, so not only that, but you don't have uh, pre-commit code reviews at Quora. So, so well, in general, um, I guess, except except for edge cases, does that raise the stakes for for an individual programmer to really have ownership over the code and and increase the quality because there's no you know paternalism looking over you making sure that you're going to get stuff right you have to get it right the first time at least right enough yep yeah exactly so so maybe to kind of recap the the system that we use so for most commits, what happens is when a developer commits the code, they check it into master and it goes out into production immediately, like I just talked about. And the code reviews are done after the fact. So we still review all the code that goes into production. Uh, every line of code is looked at by another engineer. But in most of the cases, this is happening afterwards uh, and almost always within a week. And I think what that does is it really puts people into this uh, mindset where, like you said, like I uh, I should uh, I should feel responsible, accountable. I should own this piece of code that I'm making, and uh, it gets people thinking like, okay, uh, now let me make sure I've uh, tested this well. Make, let me make sure it's working correctly. Um, and another kind of like great side side effect of this is it actually I think makes the code reviews more useful because then the code reviews themselves can be focusing more on like things that are not like like nitpicky, uh, like correctness issues in the different line. Like code reviews are not meant for catching bugs. Code reviews are meant for thinking about the like high-level design of a change, perhaps, or thinking about uh, generally getting more people on the team familiar with different changes that are happening. Or uh, so, so thinking about the things at a higher level in code reviews and allowing a developer to worry about their own sort of like logic, correctness, nitpicky issues themselves through a lot of the tests that they write. So another component that really makes this process work well and continuous deployment work well is testing. Uh, we have a lot of emphasis on, on testing your code well. Uh, we have thousands of tests that run during those ten minute, that 10-minute window after you check in the code and, and before it's actually deployed out. And, and so I think there's a lot of emphasis on having those automated systems in place to, to prevent from anything um, like negative or bad getting out into actual production to users. So let's talk more about that testing process because Quora's platform has iOS, Android, and desktop users, and millions of users. So how do you test the combinatorial explosion of possible error cases that can occur, and how do you build that into an automated system? Yeah, so that's certainly challenging. So we, we have a series, um, or we take a number of different approaches. So we do have a, a set of automated UI testing, which 
runs and tests a lot of the basic and common flows that you'd expect. And so, um, so it'll go and test, okay, can I log into Quora? Can I ask a question? Can I write an answer? And, and we have those across, um, both, both desktop web and then also on, on iOS and Android. Uh, another thing we do, uh, in particular on, uh, on the desktop side is, uh, there's a lot of just, um, uh, our own usage of the product, and we have a development instance that most people develop on. And through that, as they're making changes, they can go and uh, and test them themselves, and and make sure that just everything that they're doing is is working as they expect, and the interactions are working. Uh, on mobile, it's certainly more challenging, uh, just given the wide range of devices, wide range of um, OS versions and app versions that are out there uh, in the world that people are using. Uh, for that, we actually do a lot of uh, or we just have a lot of devices ourselves that we would go and test flows in. Uh, we actually do um, contract out a little bit of this work to, to and sort of like use a separate uh, separate agency that goes through and and does more exhaustive testing across mm. uh, all the popular versions that we have. Uh, and that's been pretty effective because then um, within the period of a few hours to a day, we'll get back some some more information about how at least on the mobile side, different uh, different. Uh, builds are working. I, I did a number of interviews with the folks at Facebook, including ones that are working on React Native. And it sounded like a lot of the work towards React Native is going for this dream of unifying the iOS, Android, and desktop web development process. Um, what are the the big problems that you see with that fragmentation of, of people working on these different platforms? And and uh, and do you see a, a route to unifying that process? Maybe like, do you see React Native as as being a potential out? Yeah. So I I think I think this is a huge problem, and it's it's something that we've spent a lot of time thinking about at Cora and working on ourselves. Uh, in particular, uh, maybe I can give you a little context of how mobile development is organized at Cora, where we um, for a while actually for a couple of years we had we had sort of like a separate mobile team. With uh, Cool iOS engineers, Android engineers, and and they'd be responsible for building out the core product, building our apps. Uh, and, and one thing we found was just this fragmentation just made development so much slower. So, like the idea of having to re-implement something on first on web and then on iOS and on Android, uh, it, it just made everything really slow. And having to coordinate all these changes across different app releases, uh, and also across different people on the team because you had different people with different native experience. Um, it really, I think, uh, slowed us down or, or made it a lot less efficient to get stuff out to, to users. Uh, and as I mentioned, how we've really focused on development philosophies as a team, we, we set out to think about how can we make this better. So uh, for us, the, the system we've chosen is actually trying to uh, double down on a lot of the server-side framework that we've built on the web. Um, we, have a, we have a system that we call WebNode and LiveNode that makes development developing websites in Python and JS uh, very simple. And we actually reuse a lot of that architecture on mobile too with what you might call like a native wrapper around a lot of the content. So when you're actually using our iOS app and our Android app, you're actually experiencing, you could call it almost like a native shell around web views, which are actually rendering a lot of the content that's generated on the server. And what that allows us to do is actually... 
uh, use the same code on the server to uh, to service all platforms, whether that's desktop web, iOS, and Android. Mm-hmm. So when a developer is going to, to make a change to, let's say, um, change how our question page looks to, um, to introduce a new part of the product, they could just do it in one place in the server-side code that's generating the page, and, and it'll automatically, you kind of get the wins across all of our platforms at the same time. That sounds like React Native. <laughs> Yeah, so I, th- I think React Native is building off of uh, sort of like that same end goal or the same principle in mind. It's it's slightly different where we're not actually going and and compiling native code from from the server side code itself. So uh, so I, th- I think React Native is taking it to a step where they're they're actually uh, kind of like using the same base and then turning it into Objective-C, turning it into Java, that'll then go and run natively on the clients and iOS and Android. Uh, for us, I think we um, we saw this added benefit of also merging it in with, with a lot of our web code. And so that's why we've, we've made a push to keep things more on the server and so still generating HTML and JavaScript, which we'll, we'll send down to the clients. And, and so we actually end up doing very little itself natively on, on the mobile platforms. So let's say you build your mobile application and uh, if it's anything like Facebook, it takes a really long time to build. And then you want to make a change to some aspect of it. Um, do you have to rebuild the entire iOS application, or can you just make some changes to this uh, this server side um, construct that you have, and that will um, that will change the whatever UI element you want changed? Yep. Yeah. So it, it depends on what you want to do, but I'll say in probably ninety five to ninety eight percent of the time. Uh, most of your changes don't actually require native code changes. So, uh, so if you are an uh, if you're a developer, you can go and you can make the change on the server side code, push it out, and it'll uh, it'll deploy out to production. And again, within ten minutes, people using the iOS app or the Android apps will see those changes immediately. Wow. Okay. Cool. So you mentioned Live Node and Web Node and I've seen a presentation on these, and they're pretty cool pieces of technology. Could you talk about them in a little more detail? Yeah, so uh, so, so WebNode and LiveNode, they're basically um, web development frameworks with the goal of making it uh, incredibly dead simple to build out, uh, build out new web code. And so let me talk about WebNode first. So uh, basically in Python... And JavaScript, it's a way to, I guess, represent pages that we think makes is a lot more intuitive for an engineer and a product designer writing code. So instead of what you might expect with older web frameworks, where you can okay define a template and then define controllers as ways to get data, and then you feed in that data into the template. Here we take the approach of thinking about it as okay. Uh, when I'm in the mindset of building a page, I want to just focus on this one component in the page. Uh, and um, so let's say you're looking at the sidebar of the homepage. And I want to think, okay, like, um, how do I want this to look? And, okay, what data am I going to need for it? And just in a single place in the Python code, you could write everything that describes the, the data that you need to fetch and how it actually looks 
Um, and we have an abstraction that you can think of as a little bit on top of HTML, but it, in Python it sort of feels like HTML uh, and then all the CSS for it. And as a developer, everything is there, there in one place. And you can kind of compose these components in isolation and then uh, piece them all together to, to form what the eventual page actually looks like. Uh, so what that enables is a lot of you to encapsulate a lot of the logic for building out a page and then reuse that across a bunch of different pages. And, and so when you're, if you're familiar with Quora when you're using it, every time you see, for example, an answer, it's actually the same code that's rendering that answer, whether you're looking at it from your homepage feed, whether you're looking at it on an answer page, whether you're looking at it from a topic page. Uh, and so we think of it as sort of like assembling these, these components of, of content together. Zooming out, Quora places a lot of emphasis on design, and it sounds like LiveNode and WebNode are definitely a tool to facilitate that. What is the relationship between engineering and design teams at Quora? Yeah, so um, so engineers and product designers work uh, very closely together to build out new things in the product, and and generally. Uh, one, one thing that might be a little different about Quora than most other companies is that all of our product designers actually write code. So all of them are, are in the code writing Python, writing JavaScript, that, uh, that's actually implementing out a lot of what, uh, what the product is becoming. And uh, we see a ton of advantages of this. Uh, I think there, there's a lot of content in Quora, too, that you can go and read more about how this has really benefited our ability to, to move quickly. But I think having having designers be closer to the code for them has just uh, allowed them to to be more efficient in really uh, closing that iteration cycle of thinking, okay, how will this work if we make this particular small change? And they could just do it and try it and experience it. And they don't need to like create a mock and throw it over a wall, have an engineer implement it, send it back. Designer tries it, wants to change a small thing, goes back to the engineer and and at other companies, I've seen that process just at a ton of inefficiency and, and just empowering a designer to be able to go and do that themselves and, and learn from it quickly, I think has been great. So, so that, that's how we think of so engineers and designers working together is that uh, engineers now play the role where they're, uh, they're thinking a lot about the technical details behind the product and thinking, okay, what is, um, what is capable from a technical perspective? How do we... How are we going to handle storing the data for this and scaling the data? But this standard of having designers who also code, these sound like unicorn designers. Can, is this actually like a scalable hiring practice to have your designers all be coders? Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it, it certainly adds a little more requirements to, to the product designers that we look for. We've still been able to to hire a really talented group of designers uh, and find them. I think these aren't, w- one thing to keep in mind is it's, it's not like the, the level of uh, sort of like technical requirements of our product designers is not at the level of what you might expect from an engineer. Uh, I, th- I think it's more just the, having the ability to, to work within the code itself. And, and from an engineering perspective, it's actually pretty pretty challenging and exciting as well because we're trying to build these systems in a way that actually allows um, people with slightly less uh, programming experience to still effectively go and, and build out their products. Mm-hmm. And so uh, 
So we might, for example, this might this has actually affected how we've designed some parts of WebNode and LiveNode. I think what we've been able to do is, is as an engineering team, focus on building a lot of uh, tools and really making our frameworks as simple and as easy to use. So it's not like you need to be someone with a CS degree from a top university to actually understand how this works and understand how to use it. Uh, a lot of our uh, designers come from uh, a programming background where they've probably um, like built out a lot of things on their own or dabbled in different technologies or um, maybe have taken a couple of programming classes in the past. Uh, but it's still more than enough to jump into the web node system and and effectively use it to go and, and build out the things that you're trying to build. Absolutely. We've talked about the different interactions between design teams and engineering teams. There's also the idea of engineering teams and data science teams interacting. Um, at Quora, you have a separate data science team that is distinct from the product team. What is the the means of coordinating communication between those two teams, and how closely do those te- those teams interact? Yeah, so um, so very closely. So I'd, I'd say actually, our, our data science team is actually what we would call part of our normal product development team. So oh, okay, so it's like a subset. So it's like a subset, yeah. So uh, on the same level as engineering or product design. So I think if, if you looked at our average team working on a part of the project today, it's probably going to have a PM, uh, an engineer or two, a product designer, and a data scientist. So, so for us, it's really important that the data scientist is is part of that group from the beginning and part of an actual an integral part of actually us trying to understand. Okay, what are we trying to build? What are the different options? How are we going to evaluate this? What are different approaches we can take? So, what what collaboration tools do you use to help with uh, communicating between product and data science? Uh, yeah, so so generally, since since data scientists are part of the same team, uh, they're uh, they're part of all the normal process of how we might uh, work on a, a project. So uh, generally, depending on the size of the project, we'll have different stages of of planning and scoping. And so um, so in the beginning, we might have let's say a kickoff where the team would get together, brainstorm, and then we'd set some goals for the project. And then uh, after that, a lot of it is just our, our standard task tracking system. So we use uh, we use Quip and Asana a lot for for our projects. Uh, I guess different people have different preferences across the team. But um, so we'll go out and uh, during this whole thing, everyone on the team knows kind of what each other are doing and and stays in lockstep. So from the data scientist perspective, understanding okay, when we're about to launch an experiment, let's say, let's make sure that we're going to be logging it correctly. Let's make sure that it's not going to interfere with other experiments. Let's make sure that we're, uh, we're aware of which metrics we might be looking for specifically so that we can, um, we can target those after the experiment's out and it's running. Mm. Uh, and so, but, but throughout this whole process, uh, everyone is looking at the same, I guess, list of tasks and everyone's on the same page in terms of uh, what's the the timeline of the project and and what's coming up next and how they're going to be contributing to or at least bringing what they do as part of their role into the the timeline of the project. At Quora, there are separate roles for machine learning engineer and data scientist. How do these roles differ? Uh, yeah, that's a good question, uh, and I think 
Uh, it's interesting because, especially as a lot of companies have started to do a lot more with both data and machine learning, I, I think if you were to ask this question to different companies, everyone will give a slightly different answer. Um, so uh, again, like uh, like all of other other teams, we expect um, both different roles to be working together all the time. So uh, so generally, as machine learning engineers, they're really responsible for let's say building and implementing out a lot of our production systems. So so building out the systems that actually do the recommendations, the personalization, um, maintaining a lot of the the health of what works. So making sure that these systems are are reliable and they uh, they're performant, uh, and also uh, the engineers build a lot of our internal frameworks and abstractions to really help our ability to continue to iterate, to to train faster, to build out new features, and and these abstractions are important. One because both uh, for both those engineers and data scientists to actually be able to to try out new models and try out new systems pretty quickly. Uh, and then from the data science perspective, uh, a lot of what they bring to the table is uh, just kind of like evaluating different potential algorithms, different types of error metrics that we can use. Um, they do a lot of the analysis to actually understand, okay, after a change we made, what was the impact of that? Um, if we run an A-B test, for example, okay, how did users respond to that? How did that affect key engagement metrics? And... Uh, and so doing a lot of the analysis. And then uh, I think another big component is just kind of like exploratory research, trying to understand more, okay, what are the different um, different patterns we might expect uh, users to uh, behave in or how are users reacting to different changes we might have made and having that feedback into potentially different models we might want to try or different features that we might want to use. I think when Quora was created, it was around the time where most of the data engineering pipelines that people had in place were almost exclusively batch. I could be wrong about this, but um, is that correct? Uh, you mean at Quora, or you mean at, at, at Quora? Right? And, well, and I guess more generally, like so. So we've done we've done a number of shows about um, you know people. Who have written, you know, there's all these streaming frameworks that are that are coming around it that are kind of trying to close the uh, the latency between the time when data is generated and the time when it can be reintegrated back into the system, like in a machine learning algorithm, for example. And um, so, I'm always curious when I'm talking to big companies how how are they changing the loop between um, the the batch process where it's you know you have a slower time to uh, to your data being integrated back into your um, into your you know something that affects the users in a meaningful way, um, and, and uh, you know get just just closing that loop. So so um, yeah, I'm just curious how this has changed um, over over Quora's um, Quora's growth. Like how has the data pipeline changed? Yep. Yeah. So we've definitely tried to. Um Again, similar to what you mentioned, there's sort of always a, a sort of like tension between trying to keep things as real time as possible, but then also, I guess, technical limits to what those systems could be. And and so for us, over time, I think we've we've generally moved to a system where we've tried to speed up and close down this loop as much as we can, at least in the areas that that matters. So so for example, I'll, I'll tell you a couple examples to begin with. So for example, when 
we show content to people in their homepage feeds, we actually want to learn pretty quickly how that content is doing. So, so for example, let's say uh, someone writes an answer and we'll start showing it to showing it to different people in their feeds. Learning quickly how people are reacting to that answer is important because we want to learn, okay, is this actually uh, something that's really high quality? Is this something that more people are going to enjoy reading? Is this something that uh, we think is not actually good and we want to maybe like not show it to as many people? So making those systems as responsive to as possible is actually really important. So for that, we've created a pipeline where we can do um, the the I guess the the logging and the uh, I guess feeding those actions and those impressions back into the the actual ranking calculation as fast as possible, uh, and that happens nearly instantaneously with with the systems that we built. Uh, there are other things which I think are like less important to be real time, uh, and these might be things where we're actually sort of like training our models to understand how different uh, different features might affect uh, uh, different uh, different levels of engagement. And so for that, I think it's it's certainly less important to be real time, uh, but we still like a lot of that information to be relatively up to date. So. Um, uh, so you can basically, uh, so we, we've gone and uh, approached a system where it doesn't necessarily need to be real time. Like in in our training pipelines that we use, we don't need to be using data from like immediately this the last hour. Uh, but we could still, um, if we can turn it to something that, uh, let's say, retrains every half a day or after every day. Like I think that's going to be good in being able to update. Uh, our models effectively. Can you talk about some of the tools that you're using? Like what uh, frameworks like are you using Hadoop or um, Spark? What kinds of tools are you using? Yeah, so a, a lot of how our data pipeline has looked has, has changed over time. Uh, initially, uh, if you think back to years ago, I think we did a lot of, uh, we, we ran our own Hive and Hadoop cluster uh, and then over time have moved to other systems. I think what we do now is a lot of the data that we um, process and look at is actually in Amazon Redshift. Uh, so, so that's been helpful for uh, a number of different use cases. Um, we do use, uh, we have started to use Spark a little more. So, um, so being able to run different jobs on Spark. Uh, for a lot of the um, machine learning work itself, that's something that we have uh, written on our own uh, and uh, a lot of the reasons for that has been just having a lot of control over uh, the, I guess, the specifics over like how the uh, data pipelines actually work. Uh, but that's something that um, we've sort of like been developing in house over the last, uh, say, six to twelve months. So a few weeks ago, I did a show about engineering at Uber with the chief architect, and he said that Uber differs from many other real-time applications like Facebook or Twitter or I'm guessing Quora because the value of each individual transaction is so high for Uber. For example, you really don't want the system to lose track of a driver that's driving a user. Um, and Quora seems you know, more like the Facebook or Twitter where the individual transaction value is not super high, so maybe you could have a little less reliability, but um, I don't know. Maybe that's not true, or 
Or in any case, if Quora becomes an information repository that is more like Google, where people really rely on the uptime, um, do you think that would that change any of the principles we've discussed? Like, w- would that make that uh, the idea of, of moving really fast? Um, w- would that change things? Or um, or maybe I'm maybe I'm misinterpreting the the moving fast as being associated with with a little more recklessness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great question. So I think, um, so so I think one thing to be clear is that certainly reliability and performance and uptime is is still very important to us. Like we we understand there's um, all of the users using our product. It's it's so frustrating when the product is down or when something doesn't work. Uh, and I, I see it myself when I use Cora and other products. And so so for us, we actually care a lot about uh, that reliability. Uh, I don't think it actually changes too much of the principles we've talked about because a lot of, um, uh, well, for, for one thing, a lot of these uh, these sort of like processes actually, uh, it might be counterintuitive, but it actually helps uptime. So, for example, the idea that you can push code immediately also means you, you can fix things immediately. And so if you think about how um, just the idea of like, um, or this is a common thing that comes up in engineering all the time. Like you, um, you use the product and you notice, hey, something's not working, something's broken, and then you have to go and debug, okay, what actually happened? Uh, the idea that all of our, our commits are sort of like going out individually helps us actually pinpoint the problem pretty quickly. And so compare that to a system where, okay, now let's batch it up and do daily updates. Now every day you have like 500 changes going out. And if something's wrong, it actually takes a while to understand, okay, was it my change? Was it your change? Was it someone else? And so uh, so it actually, continuous deployment for us has actually been helpful with uptime and reliability just because it's allowed us to respond a lot faster to incidents and to problems. Um, so that, that's, that's, I think, one side of it. Another side of it is I think we can generally kind of like, sh- in cases where we do notice problems, shift our processes a bit to kind of cover those areas that we think might be more risky or dangerous. So, uh, so for example, uh, one thing that we've done is for, for high-risk changes around our data schemas. So, for example, if you're going to be changing the schema of how something's stored in MySQL, that's a change that we, um, we um, have, have actually do the code reviews for before it's actually deployed. And so, so just because Doing like if if a mistake were to be made there, that would actually be pretty costly if it uh, messes up some of the data that we have or requires us to like undo some data migration. So we can kind of like pick and choose the pieces that we think might actually um, be more riskier or more, I guess, dangerous towards reliability and uptime. While for the other ninety five percent of the cases that that generally are 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 good and fine and and helps maintain a lot of these principles around development philosophy that we talked about, um, still preserving those as we grow and get bigger. One point that Nikhil made was that Quora engineers should be practical and not ideological. What is a way in which practicality over ideology has rewarded Quora engineers? Yeah, so I think the um, the biggest thing is that it's, it's allowed us to make a lot of um, decisions really quickly that I feel are just very, uh, very like logical, very rational. And 
uh, I, I think it's led towards us focusing on our time and our efforts towards things which are actually going to have an impact. And so, uh, I guess what, it, and, and then another thing I'd say is that it, it actually allows our discussions to be very open and it allows everyone to bring their ideas to the table and, and really have, um, bring arguments that we think are going to be meaningful to help us make a decision. So, uh, that's, that's one thing that, um, uh, kind of like an idea that we have here is that nothing is set in stone. Like things are constantly going to be changing. And so when we, when we think about, okay, what changes do we actually want to make? Um, we're thinking and focusing our time and efforts on, on what will actually have an impact. So, so for example, like, um, like I, I think most of our code base is written in, in Python right now. And so, it, it may be very well that like Java may be, uh, uh, or someone may join the company and feel like, okay, Java is actually a better language to build web applications. Uh, sure, there are pros and cons, and we could have that discussion. But but practically, are we are we actually going to move our entire code base to Java? And and that's not going to be something that's going to happen overnight. And so so thinking more practically about okay, what given the situation we're in right now, what's feasible and what's possible, and then focusing our efforts on that. Uh, we think has led us to actually um, build out systems that we feel good about and we feel will um, be sustaining and last us for a while and and continue that that we can continue to build and iterate on top of. So Cora is in a position where it wants to expand globally and it seems like there are certain domain specific challenges of expanding globally like uh, for example um, internet reliability Facebook, runs into this um and that i think that's part of facebook's internet.org um initiative and also you know at facebook they have i think like one day a week or one day a month or something where everybody has to uh, be on really low bandwidth cell phone coverage um so i'm curious how you think about these different international issues and and how you test against them or um yeah, yeah. How do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. It's something we definitely think about and and talk about a bunch. Um, like we are, Core is a global product. We have people on it from all over the world. Um, right now, it's only English speaking, but we'll be expanding into the other languages in the future. And yeah, so you have people in parts of uh, parts of Asia, in India, in Europe, and in, in Africa, which maybe like the connection certainly not as um, not as strong and as low bandwidth. So, um, so we do think about that experience in trying to understand, okay, how can, might we need to build the product and build our technical systems a little differently to, to handle it? One thing that we realized too is that we, we are still a very small team. So, so in, in a case where like Facebook might have a lot of engineers to be able to devote to this, um, we're certainly more, more limited. Uh, and so, but one thing that we notice is that when thinking about how to actually optimize for those cases, a lot of those benefits will benefit all users on high bandwidth connections too. So thinking about like reducing the payload size of our request, um, minimizing a lot of the round trips between the client and the server, uh, potentially being able to like cache more locally uh, on a device, on a mobile phone. Uh, so all these things, you know, even if they disproportionately improve the experience for low bandwidth connections, they, they actually help out um, people on high bandwidth connections too. Uh, so for now, I think we've taken the approach of Kind of like focusing on the things that will will help everyone, and 
and certainly as as we expand out into more international markets we'll we'll sort of like start looking at things that might be more targeted locally towards towards these low bandwidth connections so Nikhil suggested that we should profile our own productivity like we would code and that we should measure and optimize and make practical trade-offs. And that was a lot of what this presentation was about that he gave. Sometimes developers try to do too much profiling and they end up spending too much time on their task management software or too much time making to-do lists. Do you have any best practices or life hacks for how you manage productivity, particularly at a as a you know developer at a at a high velocity company like Quora? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think um, a, a couple of piece, pieces of advice I would have there. So one is just to keep it simple. Like, um, don't try to complicate your life with a lot of um, like a lot of overhead. And and the simpler you keep it, I think the more that you'll find people actually do it. And and I find myself doing it. So for example, just in terms of like task management, if you're if you're plugging into a system where now like every little thing you need to um, you need to like predict its effect in a bunch of different ways and like tag it with a lot of different relevant tags to organize the work in different things. Like a lot of that actually just adds friction to people being able to do it. And and something that we found where it's as easy as like, hey, let's just make a doc for um, how can we how can we improve our the efficiency of our deployment system? And it's literally just like let's start a doc and everyone throw their ideas into there. And okay, now we have a list of 20 things. Let's just order it and, and let's have a discussion about it. Like something like that's really easy and simple for people to do. And they know in the future, oh, like maybe next week I have an idea. Let me just add it back to that doc. So so cutting down a lot of the overhead and keeping it as simple as possible is good. Uh, I think the second thing is actually not to uh, don't kind of work under the false pretense that you could actually predict specifics too much. Like one thing that we do when we try to think about how to prioritize some of these efficiency improvements is think about, okay, how much time is this going to save us in the future? So I can make a change that'll make, uh, uh, that'll make the, uh, save maybe like a developer roughly an hour a week. And is that actually going to be worth it? Like it'll it'll take me two weeks to build. Am I going to eventually make back this time? As a lot of people are going to save individual hours. And okay, it, it's good to be thinking in that, like doing the math at that level and thinking, okay, what's the ROI of this? But but trying to judge, like, okay, is it going to save an hour or one point five hours or like like the, the more that you go nitpicky into something that really like honestly we're all just guessing anyway. Uh, and more just relying on your your intuition and relying on uh, just sort of like coming at a high level, making a decision, and then moving on. I think that allows has allowed us to just um, prioritize things quickly and get it done and and move on. So, uh, so it, it's kind of an odd thing to say this, but I would say like pay attention to it, but but don't pay attention to it so much that you feel like it's now like paralyzing you and being able to actually just make a decision to to move on. How do you keep an eye on accountability in that kind of environment? Because if you're not keeping close tabs, because I'm totally with you that where you, if you spend too much time thinking about the ROI and quantifying everything, it ends up slowing you down. But, um, you know, if somebody's doing a bad job, for example, you oftentimes have to come to them and be like, hey, I've quantified the way that you're doing a bad job in XYZ. 
Yeah. So, uh, so a lot of what we do is actually we do a lot of um, what we call lookbacks. Uh, they're kind of like postmortems, but we'll actually um, let's say maybe like once once a month or once a quarter we'll go and actually look at the things that we built and try to assess. Okay, how did this actually work out? Uh, so we thought that this might have this benefit in practice. Is that actually working? And so that's one way in the future to kind of learn from our, um, uh, just kind of like learn ourselves and build up our own intuition. And, and that will feed back into, uh, everyone's sort of like mental model and, and intuition to, to understand, okay, this thing that I did that I thought would have this effect and save, save designers time in doing X, um, it's, Actually, people actually aren't using it, and it's not actually saving time. Or people are using this a lot more, and so, uh, so a lot of that, I guess. So f- the first thing is actually just making sure we're having that discussion of okay, what was like, how useful did this end up being in the future? And like another thing that we realize is that um, we've we've really hired a great team of engineers, and we we really want to put as much uh, like empower people as much as we can in. And making them feel like they're they're accountable for the decisions they make, and they have the ability to make these decisions. And so, uh, like ideally, we we want people who are closest to the code and closest to the experience of actually doing the development to to feel like they can um, they can prioritize work that's going to be helping them. And so, uh, so I, I think a lot of it comes from just. Uh, trusting each other and ensuring that everyone is is learning, and so like that's another I think important part of our culture, where uh, we're we're going to make mistakes and we're going to do things that in retrospect probably we wish we wouldn't have done, but I think we have a lot of confidence that as long as we talk about it after the fact and as long as we are retrospective and reflective on how it worked, people are actually going to learn and get better over time. So as, as someone, I guess, managing a team, I don't need to feel like I need to go to a person and say like, Hey, like X and Y didn't work out. Like next time you should do Z. Uh, I I trust that most of the time people are actually doing that themselves Mm. and, and making it as sort of like self-driven and personally motivating for people and, and hiring and building a team where people have that same mindset, uh, I think has really gone a long way in just, allowing us to make a lot of local changes and big changes that have pushed the team in a good direction. Uh, That's a great philosophy. Yeah, you hire people with good values and then they'll be self-monitoring and their own personal internal feedback will be the criticism that they need to drive them towards improvement. Um, Okay, interesting. Well, Shreyas, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been really interesting talking to you about uh, Quora Engineering and um, I'm obviously a huge fan of the product. So um, keep up the great work. Yeah, thanks so much. 